Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, we're uh, looking at devotion, right? We've been talking about this paradigm, this new paradigm that we're stepping into. Uh, as God grows us from being a, plant, a church plant, a, a church that's simply planted in the ground, to being a church that's rooted, having deep roots that go down into the soil and drink deeply of God's love. Ephesians 3 is the, our, our theme for this, that you might be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, knowing that which you can never fully know. All right? And we've been working through this paradigm um, that, uh, that we've been using to sort of work it out. Right? We are looking for God's mind. The whole concept of repentance, like pr- repentance is a, is a non-emotional posture that we possess that aligns us with God's mind. So we go to God, we say, God, what's your, what's your head on this? What's your thoughts on this? What's your mind? You instruct us. As God reveals that to us, we choose to confess. We repent and then confess. Confession is seeing the same thing as, to, to see the same thing that God sees and to say it with our mouths. Here, we engage our mind, and God changes and renews our mind by his word. Here, we confess it with our mouths. It now goes from our minds, and it becomes something real that fleshes itself out. Opening our minds and our mouths to God's will and God's mind and words leaves us then with an open door to devotion. We don't start with trying to have a better heart. We start with aligning ourselves with God confessing that what he says is actually true. And then God opens beautiful doors for us to walk through, doors of devotion. We see this in Acts chapter 2. In verse 37, uh, all the people there that have gathered on Pentecost hear the word of the Lord. They hear the gospel. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Repentance, right? Aligning themselves with God. Baptism is a confession for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Skip down to verse 42. And they devoted themselves, right? So here we have the paradigm. Repentance, confession, and the doors for devotion open. The question is, is what are the doors of devotion that God would have us to walk through as a church that wants to be rooted as opposed to being simply planted? What is it that God wants for us in those ways? Well, I, I, I really think the apostles had a leg up on everybody else because they walked and talked with Jesus. Uh, it's not to say that the way in which they engaged things is, is the right way. We, uh, to say, whenever you hear a church say, we want to be a New Testament church, I mean, you got to you got to think about that. The bottom line is we're not living 2,000 years ago. Um, we don't live in the Roman Empire. We do live in today. We do have a different, very different cultural experiences. All churches through all course of time have been enculturated on some level or another. It's important to, to live and act like that. What we do need to do, though, is realize the theology of what's present and still live in that because that theology is timeless. Right? The way that we live that out in our lives, we receive by wisdom through the Holy Spirit who teaches us how to live in the times that we live. But the theology itself, the truth itself, stays rock solid. And I think that what the uh, apostles are onto here in verse 42 of Acts 2 is a theology. It's a, it's a theological implications. These aren't just pragmatics. They're not trying to grow the church of Jesus. The major way you can tell they're not trying to grow the church of Jesus is that they're not concerned about evangelism at all. Evangelism is not in the things they devote themselves to. The last verse of chapter 2 in Acts says that the Lord added to themselves, to their number daily, those who were being saved. God was saving people. They were devoting themselves to five other things, two of which we talked about. Two weeks ago, Pastor Matt taught us about the sacraments and honoring the sacraments differently here at Cornerstone. 
which we're going to actually apply today in the course of our service. Super stoked about that. Last week, Justin and DJ did a killer job of teaching us about the corporate gathering of worship and the body of Christ coming together to worship God. Today, we're going to be uh, talking about the apostles' teaching. I'm going to teach you about teaching, which is very meta, right? Very metaphysical. All right. They devoted themselves, these are the things they devoted themselves to, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. The leaders of the early church saw these four things as being the theological pillars on which the church was meant to be built. So we looked at sacraments. They gathered together, both in the temple and house to house. We've, we've examined that. Today we're going to look at teaching. So let's Let's ask for God's uh, blessing on this. God, we uh, give ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to you. We want our minds and wills to be aligned and submitted to your mind and will. We want to confess with our mouths the truth of what it is that you teach us about you. And we are looking for a deeper door of devotion and a, uh, a better understanding of the door that you've given to us in Christ and what it means to hear your teaching. Um, so as you teach us, God, today through your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds to you um, and reveal to us what it means to love you more in this. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember, devotion is the act of the heart. That's what we are looking for here. But no human is successful at changing their own heart. God changes hearts. The Holy Spirit changes hearts. When we try and change hearts, there's a word for that. It's called manipulation. And that's a very dangerous thing. Right? Um, and so the Holy Spirit does not manipulate. The Holy Spirit has authority to change things, and so we submit to that. What we are looking for are hearts to engage today the apostles' teaching, to walk through this door of deeper devotion to Christ through being taught by God. This is interesting, right? I'm making statements about teaching and heart at the same time. When we engage teaching, what is it that we actually engage? The mind, that's right. When we engage teaching, we engage the mind. But this is talking about devoting. This is about taking a piece of our heart and focusing it on the teaching. On the teaching. So this is about, this is, this is different, right? Um, this is interesting. This is about listening with a different set of ears. I mean, sure, we, we you listen with these ears. You're processing what I'm saying as it comes to you through the air right now. But when it comes down to it, if we're not listening with these ears, then are we ever going to actually hear what God has for us? There's an interesting uh, um, article that I read about preaching, I don't know, a few months ago. One of the greatest sermons ever preached was by Jonathan Edwards uh, back in the late 1700s. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Apparently, Jonathan Edwards was the world's worst orator. Uh, he was terrified of getting up in front of a crowd. Um, he was a nerd. That's what he did. It was, it was his spiritual gift of nerd. And uh, <laughs> he, he, uh, he, he, he loved to study. He loved to, to write and to read. But he did not like delivering things in front of people. But God told him to, and so he did. And he was just used by God to be an instrument in the first great awakening. And so uh, he, he penned this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, this sermon was a good hour and 20 minutes long. Jonathan Edwards stood behind a pulpit, a big pulpit, because he liked to hide himself. And he stood there in front of his manuscript, 
and he read it like this, and he read it in a monotone voice. And for an hour and 20 minutes, this is how he communicated to the people that were there. And the Holy Spirit fell on the place, and people were broken in repentance and confession and, and, and understanding God's mind and heart, and this amazing thing happened. Um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God is easily one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God had 76 points. 76 points. Fast forward, right, to D.L. Moody. Mid-1800s, mid to late-1800s. Another fantastic evangelist. Definitely one of the greatest preachers that, that uh, America has seen. Uh, D.L. Moody consistently had 12 to 20 points in every one of his sermons. It was just, that's the way that he preached the gospel. Fast forward to Billy Graham. You know, Billy Graham and the great evangelistic, evangelistic crusades. How many of you have been to a Billy Graham crusade before or seen it on TV or anything like that? All right. Uh, Billy Graham has how many points when he presents the gospel? Three. That's right. Three points when he presents the gospel. Fast forward to the early 90s. A man by the name of Haddon Robinson uh, wrote a book that sort of changed the way the seminaries approach homiletics and preaching. Um, and uh, this book was called The Big Idea Sermon. And uh, the whole idea was, the whole point was to his, to his book was that when you preach, you want to give your people one thing to remember. One thing to remember. Because that's all they can handle. They won't remember anything else you tell them. So give an introduction to your sermon and then present your big idea. This is how I was trained. Uh, this is how I think probably Matt was trained. This is how I think it's probably how Tim was trained. You present this big idea, and, and this big idea is your thought, and then your whole, the way you present the text, usually expositorily, is to reinforce that big idea. Your conclusion is to reinforce that big idea, and then you're supposed to leave here with that big idea that you can hold on to on Wednesday morning when you have a fight with an employee. You know, and you've got to treat them graciously. Hopefully the sermon that week was on grace. If it wasn't, well, that's all right. You can pray for the person that did need the sermon that day, and you can forget it. Because um, the big idea didn't apply to you. So, um, uh, which was another big point in this, um, was that you take the, the, the big idea and you apply it to the congregation's life. The people aren't concerned, this, is, this was the thought process, the people aren't concerned with, with like the big high theology of things. They want to know how it affects their lives. And so when you wrap up your sermon, it's important for you to give them things that they can actually walk out and do. And by giving them things that can, you, they can actually walk out and do, they'll understand the supernatural work of the word of God in their lives and they'll want more of it. In 300 years, or no, 200 years actually, we go from 76 points and revival to one big idea and the church in a really, really shaken state in America. And, and I don't think that it's an accident that those things line up. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not blaming D.L. Moody or Billy Graham or Haddon Robinson there. Or seminaries, for that matter. Like uh, that, that's that there's one place to 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 go with this situation, and it's and it's to the church, it's to us, um, because we're the ones that are supposed to be training leaders and guarding the gospel anyway. Um, when the apostles, or when the people, devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, 
This is a listening with the heart. Right? This, this, this is the spiritual ears that are happening in here receiving what it is that God has to say. Turning your Bibles to Psalm 19. Now pay attention to any words in Psalm 19 that have anything to do with speaking or proclaiming, some kind of communicative word, right? A communication word here in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So when the people in Acts 2 devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, what kind of teaching or what teaching are the apostles giving them? Spoken teaching? Definitely. It absolutely is. What else? Old Testament. Exactly. There is no New Testament yet. What else? Ready for this one? Questionable. Questionable teaching. Do you ever read Peter's sermons and Acts? Is it just me or does he completely use the Old Testament out of context? It's nuts. James does the same thing. These ta- people take extreme liberties with the text in ways that most of us in conservative evangelicalism, y- you don't prefer a sermon like Peter did. <laughs> Because if so, you're probably taking things out of context. Now, I'm not saying Peter's wrong. In fact, I'm saying Peter's right. Because I think that what the apostles understand that we forget is that you listen to teaching with your heart. And when you listen to teaching with your heart, it's not that you have a license to use the text however you want to to make your points. It's that maybe there's things going on that your mind just can't understand. You hear what I'm saying? Maybe there's things going on that your mind just cannot process Because God isn't concerned with teaching this nearly as much as he is concerned with teaching this. He does want to teach your mind. Absolutely. We're to be renewed in our mind by the word of God. I completely believe that. But we chew on God's word in our heart. Right? This is where we digest things. This is where the internal uh, um, 
Well, digestion, work happens. If you think of it very much like food, which God uses to symbolize the teaching of his word, right? When you listen with your mind, you're eating, right? You are putting the food in your mouth. This is listening, this is listening with your mind. When you come here, you eat. But then you're not done there. If all you ever do is eat and then uh, get rid of what it is that you ate, you know, then God would have put your, weight produce, your waste producers back here. It goes in and it goes out, which is kind of gross. But that's not what happens, right? I mean, you fill this thing up and then it sort of sits. And it moves. And you've got all these things that are trained down in here called your guts that are used, that's the scientific word, um, <laughs> that you use to digest food. And the actual digestion process takes a good amount of time, right? I mean, it, it, it's a good long time to digest things. God tells us to eat his word. He tells us to feed ourselves on him. He says that, we, that he is the bread of life and that we are to consume him. And by consuming him, we become healthy. He compares his word to milk and meat, right? I mean, these are food things. He even compares it to a food thing here. You've heard me tell this story before, I think. I'm going to tell it again because I love it. Um, is that in the old school synagogue teaching, little boys would come to school and they were about five years old. Little Jewish boys would come to school and they're about five years old. And the, they would come and uh, back in the day, of course, they would have slates you know, with chalk that they would learn their Hebrew letters on and their Hebrew words on. The first day of synagogue school, the, uh, the priest, who was the educator, would sit down with the new students, these little boys, right, five years old, and he would walk around the class with a jar of honey. And he would take each one of their slates and he would stick this thing into the jar of honey. And then he would give it back to the five-year-old. Now, what's a five-year-old going to do with a honey-covered slate? You got to remember, there's no candy in these days. You know what I mean? There's there is no such thing as sweets. There's no refined sugar at this point. Uh, there's barely salt, and it's a high commodity. So th- this is, when a kid was treated to something fantastic, it was honey. So what's a five-year-old going to do? They're going to play with this, right? They're going to get it all over themselves, and they're going to make ribbons with it, and eat it, and lick the slate, and all kinds of fun stuff. You know, things are sticky, and things are messy, and things are smelly, and everybody's in this. And then the priest calls them to attention after letting them enjoy their honey. And he says, the first thing that you need to know is that Torah is like honey. It is the greatest thing that you will ever experience. What does the psalmist say? More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. God's words are the most precious, incredible things that God has for us. When you are taught of God, you are engaging the greatest thing that you can. When you are taught of God, there is nothing more precious because there's nothing more precious than God's words. 
It starts real early, right? Genesis 1.1. And God said, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Earth The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. Second day, and God said. Third day, and God said. Fourth day, and God said. Fifth day, and God said. Sixth day, and God made, formed, right, humans. Seventh day, and God said, everything that I made is very good. What does the serpent say to Eve? What are the first three words out of his mouth? Did God say? It's the first thing the enemy goes after is God's word. If the enemy on some level can deceive you into an invalidation of God's word, to not listen to it here and to just listen to it here. Like this is what he starts engaging Eve with. Did God say? Did God really say that if you eat the fruit of this tree, you will die? That's not what God meant. God's afraid that you're going to be like him. No. Right, where's Eve listening now with her head? What did God speak his word to? Her heart. But something got disconnected. And what got disconnected is that the serpent, the serpent brought God's words into question. Yeah? You hear what I'm talking about? We think that the enemy is all about like getting us. The enemy wants to, the, the enemy's gotten us. Right? I mean, we're born into sin. We're born dead in our trespasses and sins. This is how it is. God rescues us from that. And then when he rescues us from it, he says, now listen to me. But what does the enemy come back to us with? Think about the temptation of Christ. God has just declared in the baptism of Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm very well pleased. And then Matthew 4, what does the devil say to Jesus? What's the very first things out of his mouth? If you are the son of God, Turn these stones into bread. Second temptation. If you are the Son of God, cast yourself off this temple. Off, off this temple. Bow down and worship me. Right? Because if you do that, then you can have what it is that you're supposed to have, right? Aren't you supposed to receive all the glory in the world? I'll give you half. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. What does he bring into question? God's words. Which is why teaching is so important which is why the apostles teaching is so important and in this context itself this very immediate context it's so important to understand that the apostles teaching is what what is important apostolic teaching apostolic teaching is connective teaching apostolic teaching is the kind of teaching that takes this thing over here and connects it to this over here and you're still not in the process yet. It's here's this thing about God connected to this thing about God connected to this place that we are together. And the apostles, when they teach, they, they, they dance this dance with the people. I mean, just look at it. Look at all the times that the apostles in the book of Acts or in any of the epistles or particularly in Hebrews. And this is all about taking God and how he's revealed to us in the past and how he's spoken to us in the past and bringing it forward into the future, not applicationally, but just for the sake of understanding God. 
It, it, it's to know him more. It's to be about him more. It's to get his word more in us so we're hearing it here. And God communicates in such creative, incredible ways, right? I mean, the most incredible of which, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, right? Now, clearly, this is a parallel to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, there was chaos over the deep and, and uh, there chaos over the world and the spirit hovered over the deep. John 1.1, 1, 1, the word was with God and the word was God. Genesis 1, and God said, John chapter 1, and the word became flesh. The word became flesh. God's communication to us became us for the sake of God's communication to us. And when Jesus comes, what does he come seeking? Does he come seeking his own glory? No. Whose glory does he seek? His Father's glory. That's right. And how is the Father's glory most manifested? By the glory of the Son. Right? And they're connected things. Jesus is here as a connector. Here is God and here are you and here am I and you're connected. Here is God's government. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the peacemakers. All right? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. This is God's way of thinking and here's you and here's the connector. Me. The whole point of apostolic teaching, this connective kind of teaching, is to glorify Christ's gospel. That's the point. Whether or not you have anything to apply to your life is not a deep concern to me. A very deep concern to me is that you see Jesus lifted up through the Word of God. And I'm talking about the Bible and I'm talking about the way that you listen to the Holy Spirit in the quietness of your own heart. And I'm talking about the way that you listen to the community that God has put you in because he speaks through that too. I'm talking about all of the creative ways that God speaks through dreams and visions and signs and spirit gifts. I'm talking about waking up to words of knowledge and wisdom that God places in us that we go, I had the most coincidental experience today. God's up there going, it wasn't coincidence. I was talking. Hello. But we've gotten so busy intellectualizing God's word and making it about application and making sure you get one big idea that you walk out of here with nothing sometimes because we've dumbed it down. Honestly, folks, don't get me on this soapbox, although I'll say it quickly. This is a direct extension of our education system as well that treats students like standardized people. Students are not standardized, and neither are you. There's no test that can measure the quality of how a student's heart and mind work together. We don't just want smart kids in the world. No parent wants their kid to just be smart. We want our kids to be fulfilled, right, and to have meaning. Of course we want our kids to be able to engage their world, be able to read and write and do math and all those things. But when all that we care about is the mental development of a student as opposed to the whole development of a student, then we lose something very, very deep. And our culture has certainly spoken this to us. 
And this is how we go from really, really meaty sermons that need to be chewed on and possibly preached three or four times in a row to, man, I hope you get my big idea today. In case you didn't, I'll put my big idea on the screen. (laughs) And in case you don't know what to do with it, if you get my big idea, the reason I don't offer you a ton of application, although interestingly enough, I have some for you today, um, is because... I'm really hoping that you take the exaltation of Christ from the text that we're together in home with you and that the Holy Spirit tells you what to do. Right? One of my favorite experiences here at Cornerstone was when a guy got saved in one of our services and he comes up after and he receives Christ and we get done praying and he says to me, I guess I should quit smoking. And I said, don't quit smoking. Well, don't Christians not smoke? Well, no. But you're not going to find that in Scripture anywhere. Well, shouldn't I not smoke? Is it smoking bad for me? Yes, yeah, smoking is horrible for you. Cancer sticks are no good. You know, and you pay a lot for them. Paying a lot for lung cancer, that, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But don't do it because it's what Christians should do. Like, you're a child of God now. The Holy Spirit will tell you when to quit smoking. But don't quit smoking because you've got some cultural view of church and what a Christian is and you want to fit here. Like, there's folks that smoke at Cornerstone and I'll tell them to stop smoking, but we'll love them while they smoke, you know? We want them to quit smoking because we want them to live and to be with our body for a good long time. Not because it's what a Christian does. It's what the Holy Spirit, Spirit tell you when to quit smoking. Two months later, the guy quit smoking because the Holy Spirit told him to. Fantastic, I love that story. What a great, great story of being taught in the heart. And we had almost nothing to do with that except to proclaim the gospel in a way that he turned in faith to Christ. Right? This is about the exaltation of Christ. How many points are there to the exaltation of Christ? Right? I mean, how much time do we have? We're going to have eternity to make points about the exaltation of Christ. I mean, we can... This is fun. This is great. But I think that the American church gets confused because we don't know what to do with it because we're so busy trying to do something with it because Jesus isn't something to be done with. Jesus did all the doing. You're to do all the enjoying. Long ago, this is Hebrews 1, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the point. The exaltation of Christ and his gospel. Jesus can be found on every page of this text. And his gospel is glorified on every page of this text, even in the really, really hard parts, like Job's suffering, or like the rape of Tamar, or the destruction of all of those pagan nations in Israel, including women and children and livestock. The exaltation of Christ is here when Paul sounds like he's just supremely sexist. There is something in there that you need to mine, not just look at and go, wow, so much for Paul. 
He is sexist. Throw the Bible away. I don't want to throw it or else I would. I could make a good point. So pretend I just threw it. Throw the Bible away. It doesn't make any sense because Jesus isn't sexist, which means that something's wrong, not with what's being said, but with what I'm hearing. And so I need to listen better, which means I need to digest the text. It means I need to get into it and let it get into me, which is another key point. Christians get very, very busy trying to be in their Bibles, making time for God, those sorts of things. The question is never, are you in your Bible? The question is, is is your Bible in you? Because if your Bible's in you, then you're going to be digesting it. You'll be eating it. But just because we get up in the morning and do a certain amount of time of, of, of reading and whatnot, that doesn't mean that any kind of transformation is happening. It's good discipline, don't get me wrong. But how we approach our disciplines with an open heart or not is, is really the point. The apostles' teaching is crucial. And Psalm 19 tells us that it, it's absolutely worth it. First off, the psalmist starts by saying, God's voice is everywhere. It is everywhere. This is how Paul says in Romans 1 that all humanity is without excuse when it comes to a knowledge of God. Because the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky is proclaiming his handiwork. Isn't this great? I love it when I hear about nature. Things that we tend to think of as not alive are spoken of as having life. When the trees of the field clap their hands. When Jesus says, if you don't praise me, these rocks will. He's dead serious. The sky is shouting God's glory. The heavens are declaring how wonderful and amazing God is. Day to day pours out speech. Every day God's voice is flowing through and around you everywhere. Oh, I have five minutes. I bet I could tell that application. All right. There is no speech, nor are there words where their voice is not heard. The voice is everywhere. It goes out through all the earth and the words to the end of the world. In them he set a tent for the sun. And then he explains the beauty of the sun that's radiant and glorful, or full of glory and shining on all people. So what are these words? Verse 7, the law of the Lord, which is perfect. It'll make you alive again. The testimony of the Lord. When you give testimony, what do you do? <clears throat> you tell a story about what you've seen, Right? You tell a story of what you've seen or experienced. God has sights and experiences that he wants to share with you. If you listen to those with your heart, look what they do. They give you great joy. Where? In your heart. How cool is that? The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. Fear comes by listening it endures forever the rules of the lord they are true and they're righteous altogether and these are to be more desired than gold even than much fine gold they're sweeter than honey than the honeycomb and by them your servant is warned and in verse 12 this is how we avoid error this is how we avoid our sin This is how we choose the government of God as opposed to the government of Jay. Through the apostles' teaching. Through the teaching of the word of God as revealed to us from all of the creative ways that God gives it to us. 
Specifically, though, since we're at church and we are, you're hearing a sermon, let's talk a little bit about that, applicationally. Number one, don't cheat yourself. Don't cheat yourself. What I mean by that is this. When it comes to our corporate gatherings and as a church, the way that we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, do not cheat yourself. What I mean is stay connected to the teachings that you receive through your local body. We offer various creative avenues for you to experience God's word together. Take advantage of those as God leads you and as we lead you. This is a great opportunity for you to engage God and to listen with your heart more. So don't, don't cheat yourself. We, we oftentimes walk through life uh, wishing that we had things that we actually already have access to. You know, you know what I mean? When it's just a matter of, of making things work on some level or another. So don't, don't cheat yourself. Take advantage of the, the myriad of opportunities that God's given you. There's this amazing invention called the internet that, that enables for all kinds of creative communication from all kinds of fantastic places. You know, make time for it. Make time for it. When you're driving, when you're at home, turn the TV off. Listen to something else. Listen to teaching. This is about listening, right? Don't cheat yourself. Lots of opportunity. Number one, or number two, you will get what you expect. If you come here expecting to meet God, you will. And if you come here not expecting to meet God, you won't. If church for you is just something to go through on a Sunday morning, then that's exactly what you'll do. The problem with Americans is that they complain about it as though it's my job to entertain you into listening. I'm not going to do that. And neither should anybody else that ever gets up here and preaches or teaches in any other venue where we are. Furthermore, we don't seek to entertain our kids either. You should hear some of the teaching these kids get. It's fantastic. Just because kids are taught to learn through entertainment doesn't mean that we have to be and we shouldn't be. If you come expecting to hear from God and to meet with him, you will. If you come not expecting that, you won't. It is also, this is true as well, is that in my time in pastoral ministry, as far as I can tell, most all of us have a Sunday morning crafted from the gates of hell before we get here. Look at me. You can take dominion over that. I got small kids. I understand. I get it. It's, it's, it's rough sometimes. But it is your job to take dominion over that space in the name of Jesus and to not let the enemy have it so that you can engage corporate gathering of worship together with the body of Christ. That's what I have to say about that. Number three. The usual excuses are beyond bogus. I'm done with them. I'm tired too. And so is the person sitting next to you. Pay attention. This is God's word we're talking about. This is the most precious thing in the whole wide world. It is more precious than gold, the finest gold. Put your paycheck and the Bible next to a table. God says choose. You should choose the Bible. It's the greatest thing that you can engage. Greatest thing you can engage. But you preach too long. You can listen. You watch an hour-long TV program. Keep up. You're smart. You're wicked smart. 
I know all of you. You can all listen. God, it, 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 you can do this. I get it. Some of those Sundays when I say, hey, if you're in this state today, you can take a nap. I'm dead serious. Go for it. Fall asleep. But for the most part, when you come, you need to come ready to listen. This is God's word that we're talking about, and we present God's word faithfully here. We're, we're, we're hawks about it. It, it is a it is an incredibly important piece of who we are. And so, but the, the, the usual excuses are bogus. They will not carry any weight. Not a cornerstone. Number four. If this is all you eat of God, then you will always be hungry. After a while, you won't even notice it anymore. And then you'll die. Anybody that's fasted for more than three days knows what I'm talking about. Those first three days of fasting, they're tough. They're really, really difficult. Once you get to the fourth day, it just sort of gets numb. If you get to a fifth or sixth or further, you don't feel hunger anymore. Your breath just smells really bad. (laughs) If this is all you eat of God, if when you come to Cornerstone on Sunday morning and hear the word of God spoken, if this is all that you eat of God, then you are starving. You are emaciated. You are viciously malnourished. And then you'll die. It is possible to walk around as a spiritually dead person. It's possible to come to church as a spiritually dead person. And just sort of sit there and weather it and get through it. If this is all you eat of God, like you, this is not... This is our corporate worship together, and the preaching of the word is vital to it, but you have got to be consuming Christ. It, it, it is the very life of life. It, it is what matters most, consuming Christ. I'm not talking about having quiet time in the morning. I'm talking about your life revolving around consuming him. The world wants to give you all kinds of other things to consume. You need Jesus. You need to eat of him and drink of him. He is everything. If the only experience that you have of God's word is when we come together at this time, then you are a very, very hungry person and we can never, ever satisfy your need. It just isn't there. God never designed it like that. If church to you on some level feels unfulfilling, you need to look at that piece. You need to look at that piece really specifically. Because that's oftentimes what's happening. They devoted themselves <laughs> to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the word of God. In the beginning, God spoke. When he spoke, incredible things were made. God has continued to speak. He has never, ever stopped speaking. Sometimes he speaks with the sound of crashing waves and thunder from heaven. And sometimes he whispers so quietly that you have got to get rid of every other piece of noise in your life in order to hear what he's saying because he wants to draw you to that spot. God is always speaking. You hear what I'm saying? We like sometimes to declare our own desert experiences by saying, God's not talking to me right now. I'm in a desert. God's always talking. 
God is always speaking. He never leaves us without his word. We just might have to shift the way that we listen and the means with which we listen and the way in which we listen. God is speaking, and when he speaks, the most amazing things happen, right? I mean, creation and healing and revelation and peace. That, what about that one? You know, where Jesus stands up in the bow of the boat during the storm, and he just speaks, peace, be still, boom, peace. Isn't it a great experience in your heart when you have that with God? But in order to have that, you've got to feast on God. We walk around saying, God doesn't give me any peace. But we're not consuming Christ. Of course we don't have peace. There's so many ways that you can continue to think about and meditate in and on this. And as you do, let God speak it to you. But we as a church, we will follow God in his changing of our heart to be a church rooted and grounded, grounded in the love of Christ by devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the great, great gift that you have given to us in it, both through your Holy Spirit, through the community of faith, through the Bible, through church history. There's so many ways that your voice comes to us. God, spur each one of us to consume you. We bless you, God. We worship you. We give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.